We were new parents. We were still fairly newly married. We were new homeowners. So we were still trying to figure out financial life together. And so we would touch base with the other person uh, if we were going to make any larger financial commitments uh, in any way or purchases. And since I was wrapping up my studies, Meg thought that it would be really nice and kind to get me uh, a bigger ticket item. So she broached the subject very generically with me and very vaguely and said something like, Brad, I, I bought you a present. It's a bit of a bigger gift. I'm nervous about it. And I'm not sure, you know, if it's the right gift or anything. So I just wanted you to know that, like, if you look in our account and there's a little bit less money in there than you think there should be, like, that's the reason for it. So don't worry about it. Now, if you were me and you were smart, which you are neither, uh, so you would have simply said at that point, Thank you, honey. I can't wait to be surprised by this wonderful gift and thoughtful gift. You would have left it at that if you were smart. I made a fatal error, which I probably should have seen coming, and I've seen it repeated in a number of particularly men over the last decade. In my mind, I quickly jumped to the only big ticket item that we had ever, I can remember, talking about. And so I blurted out very enthusiastically and very specifically, Oh, wow! I'm, uh, that's awesome! You bought me a kayak! Now, I know we can all look back on that moment and say, What was he thinking? But that is the only thing that came to my mind. Now, it turns out that it's probably not a good idea to jump to conclusions or very, very specific items that early in the conversation. I could tell from Meg's face that it was a swing and a miss, that as soon as I said the word kayak, she looked at me as if I was crazy, and it turns out she had bought me another big ticket item that I, after the fact I remember us talking about, and she bought me, and it's one that, in her defense, I use even more than the kayak, and that is an espresso machine. But my assumptions about what the gift were totally blinded me. I was like, you know that little kid in the movie The Christmas Story, and he's so focused on the BB gun, Ralphie? It was just, it was all I could think about was kayak. And so my mind just went there immediately, and I launched out with such firm conviction that that's what it was going to be, and I was totally, totally wrong. But my assumption was so specific about the gift and about the giver's intentions that I had it pictured in my mind it was going to come in a certain way, it was going to arrive in a certain package, and because of that, I actually missed and kind of actually offended the real heart of the gift and the giver. And it turns out that the same thing's actually true about Christmas and about the very first Christmas in the arrival of God's greatest gift into the world that he ever gave to us in the person of his son, Jesus. Because the arrival of Jesus into the world as our Savior caught not only Jesus' contemporaries off guard, but it continued to catch people, and even today catches people off guard and trips them up in terms of their expectations. Because a manger doesn't match our expectations of what God would do if he was going to come into the world. Hope came into the world on that night in such an unusual package, in such an unusual way, 
an unexpected way that the people who were there, even some who were physically present, actually missed it. And many people still miss it today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2. I love the way that Matthew actually writes his gospel in ways that help us be surprised or, or focus the lens a little bit on this notion of the unexpected or the surprising, God coming to us in unexpected ways. Even in this very familiar text of Matthew chapter 2, the various people and the expectations that they have of how God would come to them are quite different, and they get caught off guard. So for those of you who, uh, for whom spreadsheets make the world go round, I want you to think of the people in this text in terms of a graph, uh, in terms of a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. So on the vertical axis, we're going to plot understanding. All right? How much did these people know uh, about God's intentions and his plan to save the world in this way by sending his son, Jesus? And then on the horizontal axis, we'll put, uh, we'll put action. What did they do about it? If they knew something, then what was their response? So depending on what they knew and when they knew it, what was their level of action taken? Does that make sense? So we're going to cluster some of the characters in Matthew chapter 2 on this chart. So there's four kind of quadrants then, right? Four possibilities that could emerge. You could have low understanding, which would result in or could result in low action. Or you could have a higher level of understanding, but you could also still have low action, still do nothing with that knowledge. And then you could have low understanding, but be willing to take lots of action, be high action. Or you could have high understanding and high action. All right? So those are our four options for the ways in which you might be, the the characters in our story here in Matthew chapter 2, respond to Jesus' birth in various ways. So we're going to look at a few of them, and then I want you to actually think about, in your own experiences, in your own life, plot yourself somewhere on that graph, right? So let's dive in to Matthew chapter 2. Now when you read through Matthew chapter 2, and you start at the beginning, the first group that we encounter in the story is the Magi, or some texts say wise men, or from the east, visitors from the east. And they show up in the city of Jerusalem, and to Perry's credit, you know, he's right, likely based on what information we find out later in the text, that they don't actually show up at the manger scene, because Herod actually goes after all two years and younger, so they may may not have been there, we don't know for sure. Uh, But they show up in the city of Jerusalem, this text does, we do know that. And at the beginning of the first century, they just start asking around, we're here to see the new king. And we don't get lots of detail in the story about their history or their journey. But the text says they're from the Far East or from the East, and they're likely from the Far East. So this is a journey that would have taken them a long time to undertake. And probably over two years, probably going over some of the harshest terrain on earth. And the cost to them, think about that, they see this star and then they just set out. The cost to them personally, financially, like think of the gifts that they bring, and any other front that you want to assess, the cost to them is fairly significant. But how much do they actually know? Because when they show up, they just say, we think there's a king. We're here. Their understanding is actually 
fairly low. Near as we can tell, they're unaware of God's promises to his people or any of that stuff. They, sim- they simply responded to the information that they knew. They saw a celestial event of such importance, they jumped on their camels and hoofed it to a foreign land to pay their respects and bring birthday gifts to an important person. Did they understand that this was Jesus, God's Son, come to save the world? It doesn't seem that they do. And so, for whatever reasons, I would put them in the quadrant of limited understanding, but high action. They actually take uh, an absolutely impossible journey. Because I think about it for a minute and think, what for me, or for you, how significant would your understanding have to be if you were going to leave home on a two-year journey? I would want a little more information than the Magi seem to have. But they're convinced, actually, so convinced, even though their understanding is somewhat limited, their action is quite significant. And they're willing to actually put it on the line and go. We might term that faith. Despite their incorrect assumptions or their limited assumptions, they have a willingness to act at great personal cost. And I wonder if that actually might describe some of you here today. You might be here and you might be asking questions and you might feel like you, know, you kind of walk in and everybody else seems to know a lot more than you. They have way more information. And I want to actually, if that's you, I want to commend you today for actually being bold enough to show up and say, you know what, I don't know all the answers, but I may have some views about God or Jesus that may need refining or shaping or filling in in some ways. I'm at least willing to act on that. I'm at least willing to show up and explore a little bit more of what that might mean. That's actually why we exist as a faith community, to help and stand with you in that journey. The Magi actually started off in a great place. In Matthew chapter 2, in verse 2, it says, they begin asking questions. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? So for you, that actually might be a good clue. If you're at a low understanding but high action point in your spiritual journey, just do what they did. Keep asking questions. Keep wrestling with issues. And this, I don't think, just applies to people who are exploring Christianity. I think there's moments in all of our journey, in our faith journey, where even if you've walked with God for a long time, your understanding of what God is up to in your life grows dim. And 1 Corinthians 13 talks about that on this side of heaven, there's some things that we can only know in part. Getting comfortable with that tension, getting comfortable with those darker parts of our journeys is a very real challenge. Because hope comes to us in those places fleetingly if it seems like it's coming to us at all. Sometimes all we can do is hang on to those scraps of truth that have been revealed to us that God is good and that he's up to something. And would we like higher understanding? Absolutely. But sometimes our understanding is low and God says, I want your action to continue to be high, continue to be faithful. 
get comfortable with the mystery, with the pain and the suffering. I think sometimes that's just as much a part of the Christmas story as getting comfortable with hope. And we'll see that in another part of our story in a few minutes. So we have one of our quadrants there, the low understanding, high action kind of person or persons. Second set of people that I want to focus on briefly is one that actually gets overlooked, I think, a lot in the Christmas tale. They're tucked away in a little phrase in verse 3. The text says that Herod, the ruling king, was deeply disturbed when he heard all the questions that the Magi were asking. And everyone in Jerusalem, it says, was disturbed with him. You can see why the appearance of these visitors from the east, their pointed questions about a new king, might cause quite a commotion on the streets because everyone's aware that the current king has not finished ruling. So what are these people doing asking about a new king? If you were part of the general populace in Jerusalem, what's your general reaction to this news? Well, the text says they were disturbed. What do you do with that information? It's limited information, again. So the text actually gives us no indication that the crowd in any way acted on any of that information regarding the news of a birth of a new king, other than just being disturbed about it in some way. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we began our series, and I think it has something to do with misplaced expectations. We talked about a lot about what it was the general tone and what were the expectations that people had when Jesus came onto the scene in the first century in and around the ancient Near East. You see, the, their expectations didn't match what was going on in Matthew chapter 2. They wanted a kayak. They weren't even sure that this was a promised espresso machine. So the crowds were anticipating a savior, but they had a very, very particularized view of what they were looking for, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. They were anticipating a savior but if it didn't come in the way that they were thinking, they weren't really willing to follow through in any significant way. They didn't want to follow this news story. They're unwilling to get any further details from the Magi, unwilling to follow them on the short distance and the journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, unwilling to really pursue it any further. They just kind of let it drop. Which to us, with historical and biblical hindsight, might seem to be very shocking. But I, I get it. If that's all the information you have, the cares and concerns of life press in on you pretty quick. The kids still need to get to school. The bills still need to get paid. You get stirred up by something, sure. You get disturbed by it in, in some way, whatever it is. And then the next big thing comes into your life or into the news cycle. The questions swirling about this baby get overshadowed by immediate cares and concerns swirling around of everyday life. And you kind of just forget about it. But by allowing that to happen, the crowds miss out on one of the most pivotal events in human history. But again, I don't fault them for it because their information was kind of low. Their action was also pretty low. They were disturbed. They allowed that to quickly dissipate. God's actions in the world didn't match their expectations of what was going to happen, so they just chose not to pursue it in any way. Now, for some of you here today, that actually might be an accurate description of your current spiritual life in some way. 
Maybe God has stirred something up inside of your heart and inside of your life, and you don't fully understand it in any way. But don't make the same mistake as the crowds do and miss out on something. If you remain in a low understanding, low action quadrant when it comes to your spiritual life, that's actually a highly dangerous proposition. It's not the highest, most dangerous proposition. We'll get there in a minute. But you can be caught off guard, disturbed even by an event. But if it actually is something that's stirring inside of you, do something about it for your own spiritual health. Move out of that low understanding, low action quadrant. Either get more information or choose to resolve in some way that it's not important enough to act on. But if you know that you know that God is stirring something inside of your heart or has been stirring something in your life and you choose not to act on that in any way, that's a dangerous situation to be in. And that brings us to our third category of people who are perhaps in the most dangerous position of all. The crowd's understanding is more limited But we have another group of people that we run into right away in the text in Matthew 2. And these people have a higher culpability because their understanding is actually quite high and sophisticated, but their action is quite low. Look with me at verse 4 of Matthew chapter 2. When the king, Herod, is disturbed by this news, who does he decide he needs more information from? he calls a meeting with the leading priests and the teachers of a religious law. And what do they tell him? Do they say, oh, hey, Herod, sorry, uh, I don't know anything about this. Better luck next time. I wish we could help you out with this. No, they actually have the answer to the question that he asks. Effectually, the opposite. Oh, new king born? Yeah, yeah, we know all about that. We know where it's going to happen. It's going to happen in Bethlehem in Judea. Yeah, yeah, the prophet Micah, he talked about that a long time ago. They know all of the litany of prophetic utterances that have been given through the ages about the birth and coming of Messiah. They know not just a little bit. These are the people who are responsible to teach others about it. They know a lot. They know all about God's promise to send a Savior to the world. But when they have the chance to act on it. They meet with Herod. They give him the details, which he passes on to the Magi, but they themselves do not make any effort even to find out if this birth actually might in some way match any of the prophetic utterances that they know so much about. To me, this is the most troubling position to be in of all. High understanding but low action. Danny Ferguson, he's one of our uh, supported workers here at Jericho, and he mentioned this in his blog the other day. He had a conversation with a young lady about faith, and he, she was asking about the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility. They were talking about that in Art Club. You can check out his post on proyouthworker.com. And you can find out more about Danny and his work on page 12 of the gift guide on your seats there. But that phrase kind of, to those uh, who have much authority, too much is given, much is required. Or with great power comes great responsibility. These were the priests, these were the people who not only had great authority 
and great power, but they actually had great knowledge and great understanding. And with that comes great responsibility. Therefore, choosing not to act in some way, even just to check it out and rule it out in some way, leaves them very responsible and culpable. Think about it in contemporary terms and frame it out for you this way. If you're a longtime attendee here at Jericho Ridge, or you've been a person of faith for a long time, if you own a Bible, if you have a smartphone or a connection to the internet, you and I are among the most knowledgeable people in history. We have access to an incredible resource of knowledge. I'm not saying we're the smartest people in history. I'm just saying we have access to a lot of information. And I'm just suggesting that we actually have the ability then to find out and explore more about questions of faith, about who God is, how he works in the world, than perhaps any generation previous to us. We, of all people in history, and of anywhere geographically in the world, we are in a high understanding category, if you've been a person of faith for a long time. But with that comes a high degree of responsibility. And my fear for the church in North America, my fear for our church, my fear for many of you, and sometimes for myself, is that we sit too comfortably with this knowledge. And we're not actively communicating it with people around us. I haven't invited anybody to Christmas tales or to Christmas Eve, or you aren't actively building into the lives of people who are far from God in your family, making investments in them, or people in your workplace. You aren't actively pouring over the gift guide and saying, God, is there anything in here that you would draw our hearts towards, and can we use the resources that you've entrusted to us in some way to further the declaration of the gospel here and around the globe? My fear for us is that we get too comfortable and too knowledgeable, and then we just kind of relax and take it easy. And friends, this is the most dangerous place to be in, in terms of your spiritual life. A high understanding, low action quadrant, because we have access to tools, resources, knowledge required to see hope break into the lives of hundreds and maybe more people all around the world, just resident here in this room, the representative relationships in this room. And if we choose not to act on it in ways that God has called us to, we will be held accountable for it. My heart is that that would not describe us, church. That we would be people who say, you know what, I'm willing to take action in some way, commensurate with what I know to be true. So here's where we come to our final quadrant. A high understanding, high action quadrant. You may think the final character in our story in Matthew chapter 2, a odd choice for this quadrant. But despite his actions, which are deplorable, I do have a modicum of respect for him because at least unlike the religious people of his day, he's actually willing to act on his convictions, flawed as they may be and flawed as his actions might be. King Herod is in this fourth quadrant. The text tells us not only is he deeply disturbed, but 
unlike the religious people of his day, he actually calls the meeting with the priests, and then he sets up a secret meeting with the Magi and gives them a secret, albeit selfish, mission to go to Bethlehem and find out. And then they're supposed to report back to him. And then when they outwit Herod, he flies into a rage and he exercises his power and authority in the only way that Herod knows how, with swift and uncaring military precision. In order to wipe out this perceived threat to his throne, this baby born to be, from what he knows, the king of the Jews, Herod undertakes brutal and bloody actions. He dispatches soldiers to Bethlehem, and he's found out from the Magi the time that the star has appeared to him. And so he shows, he knows his baby would be two years old, roughly, and under. So just to make sure, he decides that he is going to undertake a genocide and kill every single baby boy born in the whole region, not even just the town, the whole region who's two years old and under, just to make sure that the job is done. And it's incredibly hard for us living in what we consider a very civilized part of the world and time in history to conceptualize such a heinous act. That Herod would be kind of willing to deal with the fallout politically, economically, relationally, in whatever other way that he would get, the pushback that he would get for undertaking such a project of regional genocide simply to assure the continuance of his throne. But the thing with Herod is once he actually understands and grasps his situation, he's willing to take whatever action is necessary. As horrible as they are, at least his actions match his understanding of the situation and the gravity of it. Later on in the life of Jesus, Matthew is writing, and he's trying to make sense of why people missed what happened when Jesus came into the world. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. This is yet another instance when Jesus is grown And again, he's encountered both the crowds, the religious leaders of his day, and they've all missed it and haven't quite grasped who he is and why he has come. And in order to make sense of this, Matthew goes back and looks at a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 17, Matthew says, This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him, Jesus, and said, Look, And my servant, whom I have chosen, he is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout. He will not raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious. And in his name will be the hope of all of the world. It's one of only four instances in all of the gospel accounts where the word hope is used. So why were people then and why are people now surprised by hope? Well, people's expectations. 
people in Jesus' day expected and thought that the Messiah would be just for them. That God existed to solve all of their problems and meet all of their needs. And Matthew had to remind the people of his day in the words of Isaiah, no, this isn't a personal deity at your beck and call. His role is to proclaim justice to the nations and his name will be, in verse 21, the hope of all the world. This is why he has come. And so if you narrow the lens too specifically to, oh, God loves me, he's here to make me happy and make everything in my life good, as the people in Jesus' day did. God's here to save us from the Romans. He's going to get us out of all the jams that we're in. They missed it because God was telling them, remember, this is a message of hope for all of the world, not just for you as a personal individual. Something much bigger. And when God actually did something much bigger than the lens of their expectations, they missed it. Because people thought, again, that Messiah was a military leader. He was going to come, Messiah was coming, to violently overthrow the Roman occupation and liberate them politically and in every other way. And instead, what does God do? He comes into the world as a helpless baby. It doesn't match their expectations. Even when he grows up, Matthew's still trying to wrestle with this and say he still didn't in this instance in Matthew 12 he didn't act like they thought the Messiah should act and so therefore they said forget it God's not going to deal with my problems and deal with them immediately look at the first word in or the last uh, phrase rather in Matthew chapter 12 verse 20 He says, finally, he will cause justice to be victorious. Not immediately. He'll get to it eventually. When it didn't happen immediately in Jesus' days, people gave up hope and thought, well, he can't be Messiah because he hasn't dealt with it in the way that Messiah is supposed to deal with it. We still think that today. Well, God hasn't dealt with things, evil in the world, injustice around us. Finally, the text says, he will cause justice to be victorious, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at the end of all things, finally he will put everything right. And his name will be the hope of all the world. But here I think is the point in all of this, in Matthew chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 12. I am becoming convinced that in my own life, oftentimes we miss what God is doing in our lives and in our world because it does not match our expectations or our willingness to take action. Just like the people in Matthew's gospel, whether we admit it or not, we have certain expectations of who God is and how he operates or how he should operate, how he is going to work or how he is working in our circumstances. And when God doesn't show up, in the way that we think he should show up, in the timing that we think he should show up in, and solve things in the way that we think he should solve them in, we experience a very human emotion known as disappointment. We think God owes us a kayak when all along, or at very least, an espresso machine. 
And if he doesn't deliver, then we experience disappointment and anger. Some of us have a conception or a mental picture that God actually owes us a pain-free, loss-free, stress-free existence, which is not the life that Jesus calls us to and is depicted in the Gospels for us. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Maybe God has something higher in mind for you and for us. Our growth and development into people of true hope as his highest goal, as opposed to helping you live a nice, comfortable life. And friends, this Christmas season, I don't want you, I don't want us, and I do not want to miss what God is up to simply because I have a preconceived notion of how he should work and a preconceived box that we've put him into. And maybe for you, something about that resonates. Maybe about one of those responses. Maybe if you were to think about where you plot yourself on those four quadrants, you could look at it and go, yeah, no, I could see myself. I'm kind of in that actually high understanding, low action quadrant at this point in my life. Or maybe you're in a low understanding, but you want to grow into a higher understanding of what it is. If any of that resonates for you, I want you to come and talk to one of our prayer team. Uh, They'll be available at the back. I'll be available at the back there. And Deb will be available at the back as well. And a group of people. We would love to invite you to come and join us for prayer as Perry and the team come and lead us in some carols. And the carols, one of the things I love about these carols is that they actually highlight for us the, the nature of the incongruity that the people that we're experiencing God's coming into the world in Jesus wrestled with. That's true of our lives today. They ask the question, like the carol we're going to sing, what child is this? Like what? Seriously, what child is this that's sitting here resting in this manger? How is this God's solution to the problems of our world? When God comes into the world and into your life and mine in a way that doesn't kind of make sense to us, Don't write it off. Wrestle with it. Press into it a little bit harder. Maybe God's plan for you calls you to a different way of living and acting that maybe higher action than you're prepared to undertake. So let's pray together and then we're going to move into our time of singing and response together this morning. God, we are grateful uh, that you have indeed revealed yourself to us. And we're thankful that we, therefore, uh, live in a position of understanding in some way, some of us little and some of us big, as to who you are and what you're up to. Some of us are in situations right now where we're pretty confused about that and still wrestling with the implications of it. And so, Father, I ask that today you would reveal yourself to individuals, families, who are wrestling with those questions. And God, I pray Uh, that you would gift us as a community of faith with the strength and the resilience and the wisdom to walk alongside of people in that journey. Pray for those that are here that are discovering and who are exploring. God, I pray that today would be that day where they would actually step across the line and say, you know what, I actually think that I would want to commit my life 
to a God who is actually interested in revealing himself to me and to us in such a radical way as this. If that's you, I want you to come and talk to us in the prayer team. We'd love to pray with you this morning.